0: I hear that, I think the stories are true. They're true. And we can be reminded of that even this morning. Several weeks ago, we began a study of the book of Acts. And the purpose was really to comprehend what it means to live on mission for the Lord. Following Jesus has always been about more than just church attendance, than just huddling with our Christian friends, than singing our Christian songs. But we can easily forget that and fall into a routine where we're just living our lives with a little bit of Jesus or a little bit of religion or a little bit of church on the side. But just like the first followers of Jesus, you and I have been sent out on mission with a message to carry that Jesus has come, that Jesus gives us hope, that He died and was resurrected and gives us the hope of eternal life where we can be reconciled to God. But if we're not careful, we will come to believe that the Christian life is just, or Christianity is just a political statement, or is just a cultural message, or is just um, a family tradition. But Christianity, the Christian life, is greater than all of these things. Studying Acts has been really helpful because we've been able to focus on the life of Paul, who was radically saved, radically changed, and immediately goes out sharing what he's heard, what he's experienced, what he knows to be true. And we began our study with Paul's second missionary journey. We finished it last week, and today we're going to pick up with the third and final missionary journey. What happens is Paul returns to Antioch. That's the church where he left from. And the next verse, after it says he's been there in Antioch, the next verse tells us that he heads out on the mission field once again Acts 8:23 says, I mean 18 verse 23 says, "And having spent some time there, that's Antioch, he left and passed successively through the Galatian region and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. So the purpose of this third journey is strengthening disciples. And he goes to some of the cities that he had visited on his first missionary journey, which was up in that Galatian region, kind of like, um, Uh, It would be northwest where he left from, uh, kind of that northern part of what's now Turkey. But his goal all along had been to make it to Ephesus. He had always wanted to go there to preach. He made it at the tail end of his second missionary journey. But this is where he wants to go and spend his uh, time. Well, why is that? John Polhill writes, No better site could have been picked for the evangelization of all of Asia Minor than Ephesus. No other place. It was that critical of a city. That if you want to reach the community here, this is where you need to go. So Luke gives us the context of where Paul is arriving in Ephesus after another missionary named Apollos is leaving for Corinth. And so we're going to read now together Acts 19 verses 1 through 10. And we know in late summer, 52 A.D., that's when Paul is arriving in Ephesus. Verse 1. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, no, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him, who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. There were in all about twelve men. And he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. This took place for two years, so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So Paul ministered under the authority of the Holy Spirit while he's in Ephesus, demonstrating the power of Jesus over false religion and over spirituality. And what I think is clear in this whole chapter, we're not going to be able to study the whole chapter today, but what I think as you study through this is you learn that Jesus is greater than religion. We glean from Paul's ministry in Ephesus that we are to distinguish ourselves as a church that believes Jesus is central, ministry is essential, and God is all-powerful. So we're going to look at the first seven verses and unpack that first point, that Jesus is central. He is the centerpiece of our message. You can get rid of everything else, but if you have Jesus, you have the centerpiece of the message. So in the first century, Athens was considered the city of big ideas. Remember whenever Paul was there, he was speaking before all these philosophers, the Epicureans, the Stoics. They loved to hear the new ideas. It's a city of big ideas. Then he goes on to Corinth which is a city of big business. This is where the commerce was exploding. It was a very luxurious place because of the two key ports and lots of money flowing in and out of the city. And then we come now to what in the first century would have been considered the city of big religion. This was another ancient Greek city, but it was located on what uh, is the western end of what today is modern Turkey, okay? So that is where Ephesus is located. And one of the distinguishing features about Ephesus was this magnificent temple that is remembered today as one of those seven wonders of the ancient world. So Paul would have seen this. You know, we we think of the pyramids of Giza, that's the only one that's still standing. Uh, And those hanging gardens of Babylon, the colossus of Rhodes, and one of them, uh, one of the wonders of the ancient world, was the temple of Artemis which is located right here in Ephesus. The temple of Artemis was four times larger than the Parthenon, which was in Athens. So this is a magnificent structure, 127 columns rising 60 feet in height. Just this gigantic structure that everybody was familiar with. And it was there to celebrate Artemis, the mother goddess. And for more than, it was really about 2,000 years before Paul arrived there, this city had become the center of cult worship of Artemis, this mother goddess. And evidently, the worship of Artemis was not localized. It had spread throughout the entire Greek world. So this is a really important city. Now, Corinth had a sexualized atmosphere. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. It was just an over-sexualized. In the church, we know they even struggled with that whenever we study through 1 and 2 Corinthians. Now, Ephesus, though, was a spiritualized atmosphere. There were all sorts of cults here. They even practiced occult work there. Uh, All sorts of superstitions. This past Wednesday was Halloween, and you see this kind of dark decor that's out that's in your neighborhoods, and you're ready for it to come down, and it is. its got to make way for Christmas. But that gives you an idea of what it was like in Ephesus because it was just a dark and kind of a magical, superstitious place. There would be shops that had objects and artifacts and people that pointed to this dark and frightening and unseen world. That's what Ephesus was like. A term from antiquity that described documents that contained spells or incantations was called Ephesian writings. That's just how famous this city was for this. So in Ephesus, what we discover is that religion is not the end game. Rituals. Beliefs and even religious communities cannot meet the need of our souls. We were made for relationship. And the message of the cross is that knowing Jesus is greater than religion. And so right off the bat, Paul comes into the city and he meets some disciples. Now, these disciples, he noticed something about them, that there was something different. There was something missing because he was asking them questions. And he found out the religious, in fact, he found out they had been baptized, but there was something not right here. And he found, found out it wasn't something missing, it was someone significant. Jesus was missing from these so-called disciples' lives. They had been baptized into John's baptism, that's John the Baptist. And the idea is that this John, you know, this baptism of John um, was supposed to be a preparatory A preparatory thing for the coming of Christ. So these other disciples that Paul encounters in Acts 19 appear to not know Jesus. It was not just that they had a deficient baptism, but they didn't know the Lord. Verse 4, Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. So John the Baptist is a forerunner of the Messiah. And his whole purpose in coming was to point people to Jesus. He's setting the table for the arrival of the Messiah. So these disciples had heard about John the Baptist. They had believed what he was saying. They had been baptized. But then Paul says, but that's not the end of the story. You had made the right steps, but now you failed to miss the key part. And after Paul explained this, these so-called disciples in Ephesus believed in Jesus and were baptized, as scriptures say, in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then an interesting thing happens. Paul, in a uh, symbolic way, goes to show these men that they have been welcomed into the fellowship. So he places his hands on them. And then God symbolically declares to those that are around, yes, they've been received by giving a special manifestation of the Spirit. Now if you'll notice earlier, these men didn't even know who the Spirit was. And that's probably a little bit of lost in translation idea. If they knew John the Baptist, they knew of the Holy Spirit. But they didn't know the Holy Spirit had come. They didn't know that the Holy Spirit was residing in believers. So in this moment, these disciples who moments earlier knew nothing about that received the Spirit. Verse 6 says, And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. Well, baptism is a sign of new belief in Christ. There's nothing magical about the water up there. It's only a symbol, but it's very important. It's a practice that's been in the church since the very beginning. And there are some theological differences, you know this, between churches and denominations. But generally speaking, baptism has been a sign of new belief, new belief in Christ across the board since the beginning of the early church. Speaking in tongues and prophecy was a sign of new life, and it was frequently demonstrated in the early church. As a matter of fact, I think this was the fourth recorded time we see it happening in the early church. It occurred on the day of Pentecost when they believed the Holy Spirit came upon them, and the Jews in Jerusalem began to speak in tongues, and of course it doesn't describe here whether this was unintelligible language or whether this was a language, a different dialect, but that's what happened. It was manifested among the Samaritans to show that the gospel would come to the Samaritans and then to the Gentiles in Caesarea and now to these disciples um, in Ephesus. And while we would say that baptism was always practiced in the early church and generally always a sign uh, in, the, in the church today, speaking in tongues and prophecy does not happen across the board with all believers In the early church or even today the best evidence that you and I have that the Holy Spirit is in someone's life or you know in today's church as we look around is to recognize the fruit of the Spirit that's described in Galatians 5 it's the actions and attitudes of love joy peace patience kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness and self-control that are divinely manifested in our lives testifying to our new life in Christ. That's how we see evidence of the Holy Spirit in the people around us. Now, Ephesus did not need more religion. They had enough of that. They didn't need more spiritual practices. They had enough of that. Ephesus needed the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today, the world does not need more religion. But it does need a church that believes Jesus is the central teaching of the scriptures, and of our lives. That teaches knowing him is what matters most. That I look so forward to, even in the coming year and in the coming years, as we as a church come together and say, our goal is to make sure this community, the places where we have impact is saturated with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we work towards that end. That we give towards that end. That we serve towards that end that we strategically together figure out where can we see churches planted where people need to know about Jesus. They don't need religion. They need Jesus. But you know, I do have a concern today that in our churches there are many who, just like these disciples, would testify to baptism. But like these Ephesian disciples, there's no relationship with Jesus. The Holy Spirit is not in your life, because you've not received or believed in Jesus. So the question is, do you have religion or do you have a relationship with Jesus? Your baptism is simply meant to be a symbol, a sign of the change that's taken place in your life. Baptism doesn't save you from any sort of punishment. Baptism doesn't uh, guarantee you a place in heaven. Baptism doesn't make you a better person. There's no healing properties in the water. What we need is the healing properties that are, that's in the blood of Jesus. The scriptures say without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. So you and I can have the forgiveness that uh, comes by placing our faith in the, the death and the burial and resurrection of Jesus. So the question is, have you done that? Or are you trusting in religion? Are you tr- trusting in church attendance, or in your giving, or in your Bible? Or are you trusting in a relationship with the Lord? You know, I would say the difference between religion and relationship is the difference between knowing about someone and knowing them as your friend. Do you know Jesus as your friend today? We must distinguish ourselves as a church that believes Jesus is central. And then, I think as we look further, we'll see that ministry is essential. Paul does the same thing wherever he goes. He is a creature of habit. Every city he goes to, he tries to find the synagogue to go in and preach. Every city. Here he does the same thing in Ephesus. Goes into the synagogue, begins preaching and teaching and proving that Jesus is the Messiah. And you know, if we are on mission, we must speak boldly the message that we have to share. We cannot say we are living on mission if we're not willing to boldly share what we know, what we've experienced, what we believe to be true. So Paul did this in the synagogue for about three months and then he met opposition. This morning I was with Byron Henson and Byron reminded me that uh, Wes, you've been at First Baptist now as the pastor for three months. So I've been looking over my shoulder all week to say I wonder if the opposition is coming now just like it did for Paul in Ephesus. But in the synagogue Luke says in verse 9 some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people. So what does he do? He withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. Paul withdrew where he was, and he found a way to continue to minister. Sometimes we feel like the opportunities that were before us have been taken away, so what are we going to do now? We always must find another way, because ministry is essential. Uh, Well, that's the beauty also of ministering in a city as influential as Ephesus, because look what happens. After two years, verse 10 says, All who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both the Jews and the Greeks. Isn't that incredible? The word was spreading, and God was using Paul to proclaim that word, but also to perform miracles. Verse 11 and 12, it says, God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick, And the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. Now, I know this is where we kind of struggle a little bit. We say, is that real? (laughs) You know, did that really happen? I can describe to you everything you need to know about the region, the historical context, kind of characterize these people. But then all of a sudden, people were taking Paul's hanky that he sweated on and diseases are leaving them. Did that really happen? The apron he kind of wiped a sweat with, they're passing it along, and all of a sudden, uh, you know, blind people can see. Is that really happening? Well, I think when we read these things, we draw conclusions. Sometimes we end up on extremes. One's the skeptic who says there's no way that happened. There's no way to occur that Paul was bringing healing through this, You know, I mean, that God was bringing healing through this man's handkerchief. And then there's the mimic who says, well, yeah, it happened, and we can do it today. And they, so they bring their own cloth, so their own vials of water and bless it and say if you send the right money, you know, we'll send it to you and bless you. And it'll heal you. Well, let me be clear. To mimic the extraordinary moment that we read here is to reduce miracles to magic. God cannot be manipulated. God will do what he's going to do because he's sovereign. Well, in the early days of the church, miracles authenticated the church's message. And Ephesus is this very spiritual city. And they had a legitimate question. Is the God you're preaching to us, to about us, to us, Is that God greater than the spirits that we're familiar with? Than the idols that we worship? And God is answering the question for them. So at the beginning of verse 12, it's not Paul who does the miracle. I mean, excuse me, verse 11. It's not Paul, but God was performing extraordinary miracles. But he was using Paul to do that. These miracles were never presented as an end, but they were the means to an end. God was confirming who he was and that the message was true so that people might believe on him for salvation. So God has chosen specific times to do miraculous things. And the question is, does he still do that today? I believe he does. I believe that God still answers prayers and performs miracles today. Sometimes we mislabel things that are explainable and we call them miraculous. But I'm not so sure that's a terrible thing. Because it's a way for us to give credit to God for even things that maybe look explainable to us. The fact that God gave the opportunity is a miracle, right? But I do believe that God still performs miracles. And I believe the power of prayer. And I believe in the ability of the Holy Spirit to bring healing. But don't fail to notice that the miraculous was not a sideshow for Paul. It was ministry. Paul recognized the needs of the people. God worked through him. And he met people's needs that were right there in the community, right there in front of him. Well, in the same way, the local church is called to meet needs. We must recognize that ministry is essential. Do you take notice of the people that are, the needs of the people around you? Do you see them and recognize the needs, or do you just avert your eyes? Now, I'm sure that, like me, you have loved ones that you are praying for God to give a miracle. I have people that I'm praying for that God would just miraculously remove the cancer. I'm praying for people that have pain that won't go away, that God would miraculously take it away. I have people that are just dealing with grief upon grief, and I'm saying, God, would you just miraculously give them peace in the midst of this situation? I'm asking him to do that. And you know what? I know he's sovereign, and I know he can, but I know he may choose not to. But I trust him, and I know that he loves me enough to not get annoyed when I ask. And so I ask, and I ask with faith. And I say, God, I know you can do it. God, and I believe that it would bring great glory to you, so God, would you? And that's what I do. But there are others who I can be a miracle for as well. You know, I can meet physical needs of people around me that might come across as a miracle to them. Um, I can befriend someone or encourage someone, or pray for someone. I can introduce someone to Jesus. See, I know one thing. Ministry does not happen by accident. It actually takes time, effort, energy. You have to carve it out of your day. Will you live like ministry is essential today? So we're to distinguish ourselves as a church that believes Jesus is central, that believes ministry is essential, And now believes God is all-powerful. So there's a strange thing that happens here in Ephesus. Um, And Luke captures it for us and gives us a glimpse into the spiritual world. Ephesus, remember, is this city of big religion. And it has this spiritualized atmosphere. So you would have these folks who would come into town, kind of like the snake oil folks. Or the people that would put on magic shows or, you know, would um, perform healings or dramatic you know, uh, rituals that would do, uh, they cast out demons or things like that. that. That's what they do. There was big business probably in this city of big religion. And they would use the latest magical terms or words or people. They were syncretous. They took a little bit from here, a little bit from there. And guess who they heard about? Heard about Jesus. And they heard about Paul who preached Jesus. And so the scripture says that they started coming up with these incantations These people who don't know the Lord, but they were saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. And so Luke describes how this happens one time in Ephesus. Let me read to you verses 15 and 16. And the evil spirit, after they did this, the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus and I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. I mean, imagine how scary that would be. But Luke does write this in almost a humorous way, where you're like, these people are just humiliated, where they thought they had all power, and then God, you know, they realize that G- the name of Jesus is not manipulative by, ev- you know, by every person. So Christianity, what we learned, is not magic. It's not magic. The name of Jesus used in a spiritual way doesn't have manipulative power. The second thing we notice, though, is the demon recognized the name of Jesus, did know Jesus. So rather than Paul dealing with this imposter uh, magician, the evil spirit does and overcomes the man. So this event becomes known. That's what the verse is, if you keep reading. And many of these magicians are convicted by this. And some who were Christians who still practiced superstitious things, they got convicted And they began to repent. And then they brought all these magical arts things together and they burned them. They renounced them and they placed their faith in Jesus. So in this scenario, Jesus is being magnified. And the fear that came over the people when they heard about this was proper reverence. And then the spiritual city that saw power in the idols and in the temple of Artemis, they recognized that Jesus is the one with real authority. And then in verse 20, it says, So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. So it's clear from this whole interaction that God has all power. He puts to shame every false religion, every idol. The church needs to believe more today than ever before that God is all powerful. That includes having power over death and the grave. Jesus demonstrated this so clearly when he, in his crucifixion, died and then was buried, and then three days later, he triumphs over death, claims victory over the grave, and now he gives us the promise of resurrection if we'll place our trust in him. Well, today is All Saints Day, and we remember those in our congregation who have simply gone on before us. They are not here. They are with him. And one day, if we're in relationship with the Lord, we will join them there. And I know for those of you who are family, some of you have had experienced tough years. And it may be a little bit hard for you as we remember and as we specifically recognize their absence today. But we believe they are not in coffins, they are not in urns, those loved ones are not in mausoleums or the ground or blowing in the wind. They are with Jesus. And one day the sky's going to crack. And Jesus himself is going to come in authority. And the scripture said that the dead in Christ will rise. They will be bodily resurrected. Their bodies will be glorified and restored. And they will meet him in the air. And those of us who know Jesus will experience eternal life with him. God has all power. Well, Ephesus was famous for that spiritualized atmosphere. And the truth is the spirit realm is real. We don't talk about it much because I don't know how it works. I don't know what uh, angelic forces are at work right now. I don't know what demonic forces are hanging out right now. Just a minute ago, my microphone messed up, and I thought, who is trying to mess up this microphone from working? (laughs) I don't know how it works, but I know it happens. But I have confidence that God is all-powerful, and he has authority over all spiritual forces. And here's the deal. We have to remind ourselves of this because sometimes we have fear that's misplaced. Our fear should be of him, not of anything else. In a day whenever light seems to be uh, retreating and darkness is on the rise, we must remind ourselves God is on his throne. He is sovereign. This world may seem chaotic, but there is order to it because he is in control. Acts 19 is clear that Jesus is greater than religion. The city of Ephesus, which placed a premium on spiritual activity, sees the power of God demonstrated through the preaching and the ministry of Paul and the local church. And we discover that we should distinguish ourselves as a church that believes Jesus is central, ministry is essential, and God is all-powerful. So let's apply this as I close. Do you have religion today, or do you have a relationship with Jesus? Now, you may have taken the first steps And you're here at church. Maybe you've gotten some things out of order, we would say, and you've already been baptized, but you've never really claimed faith in Jesus. If God's working in your heart today, would you respond? If you've you've already responded to him, would you choose today to say, God, yes, I will live on mission for you. Our Father and God, we delight in the fact that we get to come and worship you. And now to consider your word. And Father, to be blessed and encouraged and even convicted by it. Lord, we pray that you would have your way this morning in our hearts as we respond to you as you speak to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. If God's working in your heart and you need to follow in believer's baptism, or you need to make a decision to trust Christ, choosing relationship over religion, or maybe it's just to join our church, during this invitation, I invite you to come. I'll be waiting down here. So you stand as our choir sings, you respond.